Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is The Secret Library, a podcast about creating books. I'm Caroline Donahue, and as a coach for people who dream of writing, I made this show for all of you with a book simmering there on your mind's back burner. Through these conversations with authors, publishers, small presses, agents, designers, and everyone connected to the making of books, you'll learn where the books come from and how to write yours. There's a place on The Secret Library shelf waiting for your story. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. The Secret Library Podcast is brought to you by Muse Monthly, the subscription service for book and tea lovers. Get 10% off your subscription by using the code SECRET00, all one word and all caps, at musemonthly.com. The podcast is also brought to you by Story Arcana, Tarot for Writers. Use the tarot to break through writer's block. You can get 10% off the course by using the code SECRETLIBRARY, all one word, at storyarcana.com. Okay, we're back with another episode of the Secret Library podcast, and today my guest is Kim Kranz, who is the creator of the Wild Unknown Tarot, also the Animal Spirit deck, and she's also the author of the children's books ABC Dream, Hello Sacred Life, and the forthcoming 123 Dream. She's an artist, writer, and yogi, and she lives in Portland, Oregon. So thank you so much for being on the show, Kim. It's great to be here. It's an exciting time for the Wild Unknown because um, it's going wide even more so than it has been up to this point. Right. I, I feel like the name always reaffirms itself. I feel like after years and years, I'm still in the wild unknown, and it keeps getting wilder and more unknown. At the same time, more known in a way, um, in terms of its audience, but it seems to have kind of a life of its own. You have a beautiful description of sort of the general process of how the deck came to be in the the guidebook of, um, I have the first edition of the wild unknown, so I'm assuming that story is still in there in the more recent edition, but just sort of gradually discovering the tarot through the process of meditation and yoga. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about what that process was like when you first encountered the tarot and thought, maybe I want to get involved with this. Well, that was um, a process that kind of unfolded over some years. I was given a tarot deck. um, I don't remember what age I was, but somewhere in my drifting college years. And 
I got really interested in the guidebook and not interested in the cards because I didn't know why they didn't look as awesome as the card descriptions read. I was really into all these like deep concepts and the meanings of the cards. And so I kind of set it aside and then would come across more decks like through the years that again, it was always kind of this looming project. Like, when are you going to delve into the tarot? And, you know, as artists, we're always negotiating what projects we're going to focus on, set aside, commit to, you know, it's such a process of negotiation and really remembering like, what's most important? What do I have time for right now? And what's been calling me for a long, long time. And once I moved out of New York City, the drawing the tarot was in the back of my mind. But once I moved out of New York City, I kind of had like a artist's ego crisis. Who am I? What's going on? Dilemma. That was pretty monumental. And that coincided with me having more time creatively because in New York, it's really tricky to carve out time to make art. You can kind of quote unquote be an artist in New York City for, you know, I was for 13, 14 years, but that that didn't always mean I was making artwork. And it's a tricky city in that way. It's a hard city. It's really hard. And um, so that was part of the crisis. You know, I, you can walk around New York City, you haven't made anything creative in a year, but you just say, I'm an artist from New York City. And it kind of reaffirms itself in a way. You don't have to really explain anything more than that. If you're with your relatives on Christmas and they're like, you know, what do you do? I'm an artist in New York City. And they kind of go, ooh, <laughs> okay. But if you say I'm an artist in Philadelphia, it's a little bit confusing. Uh-huh. They might ask, oh, what does that mean? Or what do you, you know, what do you do? And how do you make a living? So this is all ego stuff, you know? Right. And that's what started to become dismantled when I left New York. And it left this gap of time, which I suddenly had as a resource. And I had this, I guess it is a resource now that I think of it, of, of a dilemma of like, who am I? And what what is creativity? And what is the deeper self that I sense in me sometimes, but can't quite get in touch with? So that was the groundwork in which I drew the deck. So all I can say is it was a really, um, I was quite activated in terms of uh, my seeking or my psyche. Some, some process was starting when I began drawing the deck that has continued to kind of lead me um, into the making of the wild unknown. So then you had the whole process of drawing it and being the artist, but you also wrote a guidebook of your own. So how was that? Cause you talked about in the intro, like there's all these conflicting thoughts about what does each one mean? And there's different interpretations and different schools. So how was it to write the descriptions that were so exciting to you to read, you know, back in, in college? Well, I I basically self-published the deck and I made a thousand copies or something mm -hmm. and they sold out really, really quickly. And I started seeing people posting them on Instagram and 
writing about them online. And I suddenly realized that people needed a resource for mm. what what the cards meant. And it's so confusing online if you start searching, like, what does the chariot mean? <laughs> I mean it's like <laughs> the cards can end up just being another way that we confuse ourselves. So the deck was out in the world. It was selling really quickly. It was almost Christmas time. And I had to write the guidebook like ASAP. So at that time in my life, I had intense writer, I guess you could call it writer's block in that I hadn't written. I almost went to undergraduate for creative writing. I double majored as a um, in my arts high school in creative writing and drawing. And I wanted to go to Sarah Lawrence and the drawing teacher that I studied with for three years at that point, she was a serious, amazing mentor in my life, basically said, don't go to school for writing. You'll always be a writer. You can always return to it and study artwork and study art in the big sense because you can apply that learning to any project that you do, whether you're writing plays or you're writing a novel or anything. Once you, you know, really delve into being an artist, you can in a sense be anybody, anything. So I can't even remember why I started telling this story. Oh yeah, I had such a um, writer's block at that time. I hadn't written in so long, but I knew that I needed to write the guidebook really quickly and I was used to drawing. So I would sit at my drafting table with a pen or pencil and draw. However, as soon as I sat down at the computer to type as a, as a quote unquote writer, all of my inhibitions and doubts came forward and just said like, you can't write in this sentence. I think there should be a comma there, but you don't even know about commas because you aren't a writer. This kind of thing, you know? So I wrote that guidebook. You have the first edition, so you'll see this. I wrote it by hand, like literally it's hand drawn that each, each page is a scan of handwritten paragraph. I was going to ask you about that because I'm, I'm a, I've been a proofreader. And so I looked and I was like, this is not a font. I was like, this A it's is slightly different font. than this. I was like, I think she hand wrote this, which is amazing. I hand wrote it as a way to get around my inner critic because my inner critic isn't as active when I'm holding a pen. Mm. It's very bizarre. It's like a t technique to undergo that deep voice that says, you don't know enough to do this. What are you doing? Which is a voice we all have to kind of work around. And it ended up being like a, a very strange creative solution, but it's kind of cool in retrospect. The thing that sucks that you can imagine as a proofreader is that I wrote it and then we proofread it. Right. So if you have to take out a sentence or change a word, you're, you're, we're doing that in Photoshop. Oh, you didn't just rewrite it by hand. Well, it depends. At some point, you like turn in the manuscript, oh, yeah. so to speak, which is actually visual. It's image-based. So we're cut, cutting and pasting, or if there's a spelling error, you're you're like selecting the little select tool and replacing the L with a, you oh, know. Oh, man. Might be. 
So that was this, that's the story of the, of the first guidebook. It was written like within a month. It was out in the world. I got a printer, Amazing. Um, a domestic printer that could do, you know, small runs. And I just put it out. It felt to me like a necessity, like an obligation, a time sensitive necessity. And that's how the guidebook was written. So it was just your sort of, because you've talked about the that you've had this incredible focus and intensity just when drawing that they just sort of right. happened in a way, the drawing. So did it feel the same way to write the descriptions? Like you just kind of tuned into the card and this is, this is your meaning. And from all well, the experience that you've had, I really knew by the time I had made the drawings, I really knew the content of the image that I was going for. And also, at the time, I had I went to a and got a tarot reading from a woman in upstate New York. And I don't get many readings. Um, people always think I'm like getting and giving readings left and right. But I'm pretty selective about when and why I get a reading. And I didn't tell her that I just finished drawing a tarot deck because I was just shy. And I didn't want to have that come affect the reading. And... The last card in the Celtic cross spread that came up in the final position was the hermit card. And she said, I know, I know you talk about yourself like a artist, like a visual artist, but this is a card of the writer. I don't know what project you're working on right now, but it's going to involve books, lots of words, books and books are in your future. And you have to close all of the books you've been reading in order to prepare yourself for this project, whatever it is. She was like, I don't know what you're doing, whatever it is. You have to write it from you, from your experience and also from your deeper sense of knowing and understanding the cards, which isn't, you know, you can think, well, I don't know enough. I haven't been working with the deck for 20 years. And she was basically like, I don't care. You have to write from your voice. And she just pointed to that illuminated light in the hermit card in, you know, all the images of the hermit card, pretty much no matter what deck you look at. And she said the only way that illumination can get out to the world, which is what this card is about, is if it's really intimate and your, your light, not anybody else's. So I went home that was when I was just finishing editing you know the book and working on the final pages and I just thought fuck it I'm just gonna put this out as as me as these archetypes and these ideas and concepts kind of using me as a conduit I'm just gonna be the conduit right now and put out this book that's amazing I think it's so important because it does come across that way that that there's a sort of intimacy when you read the descriptions. It feels like you're talking directly to the person reading it. At least that's how I feel. Well, it was important for me to not go too far with the descriptions. There was a time limitation involved as well, but people always want to know more and more and more. And to me, it's like give the seed and then let the person explore what the plant is instead of me saying, this is exactly what this card means in every situation of your life. I'm just not interested in that type of thing. It doesn't feel 
authentic to me, but also it doesn't feel particularly useful because the whole idea is that we become more awake and more sensitive to our own, you know, you can call it wisdom, but you can also just call it your psyche or yourself, like who we are and what the world means to us. And I think that just takes time and repetition. It's, it's essentially like practice, practicing, you know, whether it's any kind of practice you have, drawing or meditation or whatever it might be. Um, the tarot is a way that we can kind of practice knowing ourselves and knowing what's most important in the world. I think, I think that's something beautiful that you said recently when I saw you speak at, um, in Los Angeles was the fact that like what the cards are for, that it isn't about finding an external message about this is what I should do, but rather clearing away obstacles you said it much better than I am, but the, but that there are these layers of our being and that getting clear on that, that the tarot is a tool. Right. It's not an end. And I think it's a means and people get confused. And I just don't believe that any, any tool is the end. The end is so vast and mysterious and powerful and beyond our wildest dreams that all these tools that we use to get there are just, you know, the boat to get off the shore that we usually stay on in our ignorance is a strong word for it, but it's avidya. It's in in Sanskrit, it's avidya. It's, It's not remembering or not knowing who we are. So in a sense, when we use the tarot, we kind of get in a boat and we launch off into this water that helps us remember that we have a a deeper self and and perhaps like a deeper purpose for being here. So it's it's all kind of a mystery. (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm really fascinated by how this is unfolding in this unusual way in this particular point in time that we're in. Because on the one hand, I'm watching this kind of explosion of interest around tarot and that it becoming more mainstream. And I'm really interested in how that's happened for the wild unknown. Like, you you know, you're seeing it, it's available in a way it wasn't available at the beginning. And at the same time, we're watching this incredible political landscape happen. (laughs) And those, it, it seems like there's this incredible opening on the one hand. And then there's also all these things like Brexit and, you know, like, oh, we want to be separated. We want to stay separate. And I'm I'm just curious about your thoughts on that. Well, I feel the same way. It's um, a really interesting time. It feels like the ending and also feels like the beginning. I mean, watching the tarot go mainstream has been just a trip for me. I, you know, I I think it was four years ago now that the deck came out as a self-published and just this fall, it came out with HarperCollins and now goes wide, like around the globe. And it actually, the publishing date, the day that it arrived on people's doors was election day, which was also a trip for me because I was devastated that night. And initially I was confused why the deck was launching that day. Anyways, I thought it was a bad PR move and just like confusing. 
with the all the weight of the election. And it came out, and that night I thought, well, at least all these books and tarot decks are arriving at these doorsteps on this day, in this dark hour. And I thought, well, maybe there's something to it in a sense. And it actually mimics what you're saying. I'm not saying that the tarot deck is some like illuminating thing, but just to say that there is this opening up at the same time, there seems to be this pushback and isolation and saying we're unlike each other and separation. And it's, it's a very strange time. I think it's hard for us to hold both possibilities that while things feel like they're ending and kind of almost like an apocalypse sense or sensibility, that new things aren't simultaneously happening. Like in a sense, if this is the end, if this is like the apocalypse and this is the end, time doesn't really happen in this logical way that one thing is over and then the curtain closes, the curtain opens and the new thing begins. You could say that the new is beginning to grow the same time that the end is happening. So mm-hmm. we're just in that time of possibility and pain and confusion. It feels hopeful to me in the sense that I was actually in one of the houses where the deck arrived on election night. We were having a um, a, a quote unquote party because it did not feel like a party. Um, but a friend of mine, um, he has that superstition that you have to receive a tarot deck as a gift. So he made this bargain with me and he's like, tell me a deck you want and then you get me this one and then we can <laughs> so that he could get it because he really wanted it. So I had ordered it like a month and a half before. And then that was like the happy thing that happened that night. He was like, look, I have my deck. He was so happy for like a minute. And then we went back to watching the returns. But I think it's it's something that is there now to kind of explore, like, how do we really feel and getting clear? I mean, in some ways, it, it reminds me of like the death right. card. There's something that's happened that is a shock to the system so that we have to get clear about what, what really matters, what, what was really important and what are we willing to really work for at this point? Right. I mean, a death card is so interesting. I mean, we could have like a whole podcast just on the death card because people love to say, Oh, the death card is just rebirth. And they kind of like (laughs) make it seem like that's it and easy peasy. And the death card is also, yes, a rebirth, but the annihilation of the thing that is dying is painful. And we forget that and say, well, I'm just going to be rebirthed. And, you, you know, it's kind of like a yogic, it's kind of like a biff of the yogic marketing world that we live in is like, rebirth looks like this. And you're doing like, oh, you know, and it's true. True rebirth, you have to let go of what was. And there's attachment to that thing because we're used to it. And there's mourning and there's pain. So I think in some ways we kind of have to get real with the death card. Sometimes it just means something simple, but it can also be literal. Things die, you know. And we love to avoid that in our culture. 
But I remember when our neighbor, back when I lived in Topanga Canyon in California, we had these neighbors that are so sweet. And the wife was really into the deck. She was using it all the time. The husband was a little weirded out by it, just for witchy vibes. And he didn't really want to use it. And a couple months passed and we hung out with them more and he got more comfortable with the idea. And so he decided to pull a card and he pulled the death card, first one. So everyone just said, oh, it just means rebirth. And that week, his dog died in the backyard inexplicitly, young dog. And his grandfather died. Oh, boy. So at that point, he was like, okay, who are these neighbors? And what is up with this tarot deck? And it was a good lesson for me because sometimes I even say, oh, it's just rebirth. But... In order for a thing to be re- reborn, something dies. And that is really the eternal dilemma of the death card. And I wish I could remember this quote. It's by Ananda Kormaswamy. Something like, in order for anything new to exist, first, it must cease to exist. And that ceasing, in, in order for us to attain a higher something or other, we must first cease to exist. So that's really addressing that idea of letting go of what what is in order for something new to be possible. Yeah. I mean, I think I the phrase that came up as you were talking about that it's just rebirth, like that whole spiritual bypass. It's such a bail. It's such a bail. Yeah. And I think it's important for anyone who's trying to write or trying to create something to be available to the real muck. I think it's our duty. It's our obligation. If we, as artists, writers, if we bypass it, it's a loss for the readers. It's a loss for whoever might come in contact for the work in that it's a missed opportunity. And it's also a missed opportunity for us because at some point we'll be on our deathbed. You know, it might not be a bed, but there will be the final moments. And the more that we, in a sense, die before we get to that moment in that we were able to let go of what was and become what is what we are called to become, the better we will be at dying. I can't remember who says die before you die. It's like Hafez or Mm. like somebody, you know, one of the, one of the greats. I love that quote, die before you die. And the idea you could do that many times in your life in order to become the deeper, truer self as you grow older. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think that's so important because in some ways, you know, you've created this thing that is now out there and other people, I mean, people are tattooing it on themselves. There's a whole life. And, and I think that could be in some ways really terrifying to watch. Like I've created this thing and it's, look at where it's going. And I think anyone who's going to create something, be it writing or art or both, and is willing to put it out in the world, you kind of have to die to being you that's responsible for the thing in order to watch this. Because how do you kind of make space for that, that level of, I don't know, I mean, people who don't even know about tarot, I've sh- I'm like, you know, this one, I show they're like, Oh, yeah, 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 I totally know that. Um, like, how is that for you? It's really strange. But it's strange and difficult when I take it 
personally, or I go with a more ego approach to like, I made this deck, you know, quote unquote, but I don't think about it like that. And in a way at, you know, a few, a few weeks after the deck came out, I, I saw on Instagram the, under the hashtag, how many people were posting the deck and I could see the trajectory. It might've also been around the time when I saw the first tattoo or something. And I could see the trajectory of the deck and I knew it was beyond me and it was beyond what I had so far known as an artist of a work going out in the world and kind of doing its own thing. And that day I thought, okay, at some point this deck is going to be on Amazon, even though I hate Amazon and don't want anything to do with it. Someday this deck might be at like Target. And even though, again, I don't like Target and I don't care and all that stuff. And so I just made a pledge to myself until that day, until it goes far and wide, I'm going to be selective about the stores it goes in and do my best to kind of tend to this child in a way but it's like I could see the child's future possibility and that was going to go beyond me as a mother and it's not about me and I knew I'd have to let it go so part of the task then was finding the right publisher and the right fit in a place that was a long-term home in a sense for for the deck and I found that with with Harper Collins Harper Elixir it's they're the exact people to um, kind of nourish and in a way like protect the deck and do what's best for it. And now I kind of just have to like shake my head in disbelief and thank the forces that be and just say, wow, what a trip. How did you know that HarperCollins was the right fit? Like what about them told you that as you were going through this process? I had a phone conversation with them and I knew about 90 seconds into the call. It was the the integrity and the intrigue that I could sense in their voices that they had, they were also and and are also seekers. And it, it wasn't like a commercial agreement. Yes, there's contracts. And yes, there's all the negotiating points. But I really felt like, oh, these women are authentic seekers. And that's something that if you spend time doing self-study and and, and practicing, whatever that practice is, you can spot it in a person like immediately. And I don't know what that is. It's really interesting, but your sensitivity to it gets more and more heightened the more that you practice. And I mean, I'm sure you've experienced this with writers and speakers and it's that thing of, oh, they get it. They're totally here. Mm -hmm. They're, they're present. They're on this path. So that was the feeling I had. And by contrast, I, you know, had inquiries from other publishers that you just immediately can tell this person has no idea what's going on. So I had Mm -hmm. my first children's book, ABC Dream, was also self-published initially. And I was contacted by a a big publisher about six months after it came out, Anthropology had started carrying the book. So they got then the, then the publishers get interested and they wrote me and said, we're interested in carrying this book, but we'd like to take the alphabet out of it. 
And I was like, hmm. Isn't that the whole point of the book? book. Without the alphabet, what is it? (laughs) And I also thought, who wrote this email? Like, who's working at these publishing houses, you know? And it made me realize that nobody really knows, especially in the publishing world right now and some of the other arts world, nobody really knows what's going on and how to monetize and stabilize monetarily from artwork these days. And you can't trust that they know better than you. It's just not not a fair assessment of the big picture. They're trying to figure out how to find a bestseller, just like we're trying to figure out how to write one. You know, (laughs) nobody really knows. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, I think that's, I think it's really heartening too to hear just, you know, you have to stay true to your values because I think a lot of people, I imagine, are writing and get scared and kind of block up. And there's just this feeling of like, okay, my writing is safe when it's in here, either in my own little notebook or in my laptop or in my head. But if I put it out there, who knows what's going to happen to it? There's going to be mean people who reject it or I'm going to get nasty comments or, you know, all of these things that could happen. But hearing stories of things landing in a safe place and and feeling good, I think, is important for people to hear. That that's good. I'm glad I can provide one in the midst of the the confusion, because it is a strange time in terms of publishing. You know, is a self-published the right thing to do? Is finding a small um, publisher, small distribution, waiting for the big wigs to come around? There's no map right now for us as writers or visual artists or musicians. The old systems are breaking down. It's kind of like what we were talking about earlier. The old systems are breaking down. The new systems haven't quite been established yet. So there's no map and that's freeing, but it's also disconcerting. And I always tell writers, especially when they say, how do I self-publish or what do I do? How do I get a publisher? And I usually ask them about the project, like how, how far along are you in the project? And what if you just keep working on it? What if you learn more about it by completing it? And then you'll know where it wants to go. Because I think the the thing that happens is that people start their novel and they get halfway through it or maybe one third through it. And all those questions you were just asking start to rise up. Who's, you know, what are people going to think? My dad's going to read this. God, what's going <laughs> to happen if it if it doesn't sell and doesn't get big, I'm screwed. If it does get big and all everybody reads it, then I'm really screwed. So you're you're in this dilemma and it's at that point people bail on the writing and they start to figure out, they start to try to answer the question, what's going to happen to the book? Who's going to publish it? What do I do with it? How much money and all that stuff. And so usually I try to get the person back to the process of completing the thing um, because sometimes figuring out what we're going to do with the thing can be a distraction from just doing our due diligence as an artist to like make make it and see it through and get to know it and get to know maybe where it wants to be in the world and how it can get there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it sounds like this is just, I see this happen. It's something that happens just like when you were starting to write the guidebook, 
And it's a way that the critic kind of sneaks in the back door and is like, wait a minute, people are going to read this and maybe they won't like it. And is it really worth it? And, you know, all of those little nasty voices coming in. It's the worst. And all I can say is that if you're making work that is progressive as an artist, if you're truly progressing and therefore there's risk, those voices do not go away. You can learn about them. You can learn, you know, make new tricks and all these ways to negotiate them. But if we're constantly taking risks as an artist and putting ourselves out there in these new ways, the new voices, the ones we didn't hear that first time around are, are activated for the first time because in a sense, the work gets deeper, let's say. So then the deeper voices come out. And the idea that they just go away, for me, just hasn't happened. It hasn't worked. It's just, um, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting on like a longer uh, book, way more personal than I've ever done before. And the, these questions are just rampant for me. I'm just sitting on the manuscript. Like, how many more weeks can pass by before I officially send this? So, but then you just have to learn a new trick. Like, okay, this is how I'm going to negotiate these motherfuckers, you know? <laughs> I, I don't, I, it, it's so infuriating to me because what happened was I figured out this one trick, which was working really well, which was basically like, if they're really panicked and freaked out and really urgent and like, no, this is not good, then I know I'm onto something good. So that was really working for me for a while. But the problem is I figured out that they listen when I tell people, this is the trick. If they're getting there, if you're... If you're doing really, you know, this is a bad idea. This is really, it's going to tear your family apart or whatever kind of urgent thing they're saying. I'm like, okay, this is good. I should keep going. But then they change tactics where instead of, they're like, oh, she's figured that one out. Yep. So then I started to get really sleepy instead. And I was like, oh, I need a nap. And now I'm like, oh, those jerks. That's so much harder for me to work around because I'm like, I'm falling asleep trying to write something. So now... I feel like I have to, you know, I'm like drinking coffee and everything, but you know, you have to, it's like they learn too. It's so unfair. Yeah. You could, you could say it's as elusive as creativity is like the shadow to creativity is as elusive as the creativity itself. So yeah, yeah. even though it, it's super fascinating and, and it's amazing. It, it's like, it makes me smile. I don't know why I'm like beaming. I'm like, God, can you believe it? It's so fascinating. But the psyche is so fascinating, and especially in relationship to creativity. I mean, I would just think that that means it's, it's good in a sense. You're, um, they're listening to you, you're listening to them, and you're figuring out new ways. But I do think, I mean, I still hold on to underneath that you know, there is such potential to make a difference with this work when it goes out there. Like your work is like maybe the textbook example of, you know, taking a risk and having it be of benefit. And I can't think of a time we need that more from more people to tell stories that we haven't heard before. Right. That taking a risk feels so essential right now. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about Lena Dunham as a, as a figure and what she represents right now. And I know, well, I don't know, but I'm going to guess that as she continues to grow as an artist and performer and writer and all of these things, and because of the election and because of some of the backlash that's happened against artists, and she's been a target of that big time. 
And so it's an interesting example of what we were just talking about. As her life's work gets deeper and more meaningful, reaches a wider audience, those voices, and in her case, they're literal. She might have her own voices in her head about why she shouldn't be doing something, but the voices of the public are starting to come to her and say even nastier things. Um, if you check out her Instagram, it's like, I don't know how she keeps going on, but I want to like write her letters and just say the whole point is to shut up artists because the power, the new powers that be know how influential, hugely influential creatives are in keeping inspiration and deep connection in our culture. And of course, they are the first ones that they want to shut down. It's like, this is classic fascism. First, find the artists, find the people that are creative, that are risk takers that people are listening to and make their life hell. And when I think about Lena, I was just thinking about her this morning and I just thought I'm sending like a little bit of strength, like just do a little prayer for Lena, you know, in my own way and say, don't be shut down by those voices that are partially, it's almost a manifestation of those inner voices we were just talking about. The world comes alive and starts commenting and reviewing on Amazon and whatever they might be doing. So our resilience, our muscle of resiliency as artists has to be like even stronger. And in the last weeks, I'm realizing, whoa, it has to be stronger in this totally other way that I never imagined we would have to be strong. It's fascinating. Yeah. So everybody listening, keep going, I guess is what we're saying. <laughs> Lena Dunham or not, I'm sending a prayer to you to keep going. And um, we need all of us, you know, myself and yourself and ev really everybody to be more, a little bit more, not even a little bit, less influenced by those inner voices that keep us thinking small and not wanting us to finish the projects. There's a whole yeah. new set of um, consequences now. The consequences are big now. Before this election, they were like small and more mundane, like, I don't know if anybody's going to like this book and da da da. Now it now it's like the big the big questions are big questions and the big risks are really what's what's in our reality. So I think it's the time for the artist. It's our, yeah. our moment. Yeah, no matter who you are, I think we need to hear what your story is because I think we're all so separate now and we don't understand each other and that's how we got here. Yeah, and this story is such a missing piece in that hearing people's stories. Well, thank you so much. This is I could talk to you all day about this. So, <laughs> but um, but I'm so grateful for um for this conversation and being able to dive into it a little bit more. It's been great.